Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding of your word, that you give us focus, that you would convict us of opportunities, of needs to pray and to go, that we might be found faithfully laboring where you are calling us to labor as a church and, Lord, individually. Lord, I pray that each one of us might be spirit-filled as listeners as we listen for the Holy Spirit is directing. And Lord, that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher, that the message might be from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The message is entitled, The Lord's Work. The Lord's Work. It's not my work. It's not the church's work. It's the Lord's work. And if an individual or a church is going to be found faithful, he needs to be working. They need to be working where the Lord has called them, doing the Lord's work, the Lord's way. Now, a lot of people, they say, well, WWJD, I just want to do what Jesus did. But they don't take any time to look back to the Scripture to find out what did Jesus do? How did he minister? How did he operate? And so I want to look at his methods, his motivation, and then, how does that play on our lives? What's his instruction? How do we get involved? How do we get to work? First of all, his method. It says, verse 35, he was teaching in their synagogues. He went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Now, Synagogue is something that they kind of developed in their time of dispersion in Babylon. And they, uh, they didn't have the temple to go to, and so they had these places of, of uh, teaching, and they were primarily teaching. And they would read the word, and then they would give the understanding of what the word was teaching, and then would give application for everyday life. That's the same thing we're to be doing in our churches today, teaching. And in those days, the synagogue, which I think the Yiddish is school, kind of like our school. And so it was an idea. They were teaching and building the people up. So the church, the local church gathered primarily as a place of edification, of building people up, of strengthening them so they're able to do the work of the ministry. And so he went about everywhere teaching. Now, they had this tradition that if you are a teacher, maybe you're coming from someplace else, and these are little synagogues, you know, they're all over the place. And there was one in your neighborhood and somebody else in the neighborhood and one in little villages. And so if somebody was traveling and they were a rabbi or well-known teacher, then after the scripture was read, then they were given opportunity, these visiting rabbis, to get up and preach, tell them what the Lord was saying and try to apply the scripture to life. And so Jesus took advantage of that and went everywhere teaching the word. But that's not where it stopped. It says he also was preaching. 
he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The word here is paruso, to herald or to proclaim, to announce, make a public proclamation outside the synagogue, on the streets, in the highways, the hillsides, by the sea, in a house, anywhere and everywhere he went. He was announcing the kingdom. He was proclaiming the kingdom. He was affirming that God was the king and that God had a kingdom and that God was offering that kingdom. There was a standard for entry into that kingdom and he was telling them what that was. And that entering into the kingdom brought about tremendous and eternal blessing. And so he was proclaiming the kingdom. That's kind of like evangelism, right? So we come to the, <coughs> the local church, we build people up, and then we get the salt out of the salt shaker and we take the gospel out and we preach the kingdom just like Jesus was doing. We're doing the Lord's work, the Lord way, the Lord's way. There was a third element of his ministry. It says he was healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Commentators say that Disease and sickness was eradicated in Galilee. Anybody that wanted to get well, all they had to do was come and find Jesus. Now, there's two reasons that he was healing. The first is to affirm the message. He was teaching a message that was totally opposite to what the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were teaching. Theirs was a legalism, a burden. God was kind of a bully, and you better get in line. And Jesus came ministering truth and grace. They had twisted the scriptures. And basically, the, the, the Jews, for the most part, are in this darkness today that you really can't understand the Bible, and so you've got to give somebody else to tell you what it says. Now, we know that's not true, that you have the Holy Spirit. You can read the Bible. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're born again, you can understand what God is saying to you. In fact, if you go to a church that tells you only the pastor or the elders can teach you, and that you don't have the Holy Spirit, you got to listen to them, then you find a different church. Now, hopefully we have people that study the Word of God and they give their lives the Word of God so they can give you what the Word of God is saying. But if they're saying, no, 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 only they have the keys, the knowledge, they're lying to you. Because the Bible says everyone that has the Holy Spirit has been anointed and the Holy Spirit will teach you from the Word of God. So the first purpose in his, in his uh, doing these miracles was to affirm the message because it was so different from what they've been taught. But the second and probably more important is that Jesus did these miracles to demonstrate the loving tenderness of the heart of God. Jesus wanted those people to know that God was not like the Pharisees said he was. God was compassionate. God was sympathetic. God was tender. God was loving. God was filled with kindness. God was merciful. This is the part of Jesus' ministry and I believe is essential in ours also because it was personal. You can proclaim the good news of the kingdom and how to enter it, but you must also know that Jesus touched people where they were hurt and he was sympathetic. Now, I know some churches, they go all to seed on just social ministry and they never get the truth. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's also people, also churches that they preach doctrine, but they never get down basic and try to reach out and touch people where they're hurting. And we've been talking about that in church. This is where God is leading us. And for years, we have been praying about how to reach those other parts of our, even our culture right here in Laramie, Spanish ministry, poor kids that need feeding and need help with their homework, very practical ministry. You know, Sunday school was invented for the most part by a guy named D.L. Moody, and Sunday school was actually school on Sunday because they were teaching kids too poor to go to school how to read and giving them the gospel. 
so thankful for that ministry because it still preaches the truth today, 160 years after Moody went to be with the Lord. And so as you look around, it's very easy to be like the Pharisees and say, well, you know, if God blesses you, then you'll have some. But that's not what Jesus did. He touched people. He touched people the Pharisees wouldn't touch. In this chapter in Matthew 9, a little girl had died. She was sick, and on the way, she died, and Jesus went in, and he touched her and lifted her up by the hand. You were not to touch dead bodies unless it was your own relative because you'd be made unclean. But when Jesus touched the unclean, they became clean, and she came back to life. And right there in the same chapter, this chapter we're looking at, some blind men came, and he, he touched them. He healed them. He touched lepers, and he healed them. A woman had an issue of blood in this chapter, and for years she'd been trying to get it healed. She spent all of her living on doctors. No one could heal them, but God gave her the thought in her heart that if she could just reach out and touch the garment of Jesus, she could be healed. She, she didn't think she was worthy of even talking to him, but she got in the crowd, and she reached out, and she got a hold of her garment, and she, and he, and she was healed. Jesus touched people. Now, he was courageous enough, bold enough to go where the people were hurting. We like to protect ourselves. We like to have a Christian area that is Christianity that takes care of us. And the fear is, well, if I get involved, then, you know, I won't have any me time. See, that's a worldly philosophy that you need me time. And you can go that way as a believer and organize your life and and have your job and, and, and really worship that and, and, and put aside money for your retirement so you can have a lot of me time later. But in the meantime, you are missing out on the great joy of walking in the Spirit and getting an opportunity to be involved in worship that God created you for. Because see, grace doesn't just flow in. If it does, you, you're, you'd be the Dead Sea, and that's probably why there's a lot of stinky, spoiled Christians around because everything's flowing in and nothing's flowing out. For you to really experience the joy of the Lord, there needs to be flow. What is your ministry? Where are you giving? Where are you giving of your life? So Jesus taught in the synagogues. He taught the word of God. He preached the gospel and because of his love for people, he reached out and touched them where they were hurting. Verse 36. What was his motivation? Jesus saw people. He saw people. You got to know what the needs are. Do you know what the needs are in our community? You know, there's homeless in our community. There's kids that need feeding. You know what the needs are in our country? We've been preaching in this series in times like these that not only Christians are wondering what in the world is going on, the whole world's been turned upside down. What every, the culture just used to know is right and wrong is no longer right and wrong. We celebrate perversion and we castigate and put down righteousness. And the world's thinking the same thing. Their world is falling apart also and we have opportunity to to reach out and to minister to them and, and to be able to sympathize with them. And it says, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. The word for compassion has to do with 
what the, the, the Oriental thought of as the center of emotions, the stomach. Now, we talk about loving people with all of our heart. We talked about in the, the Psalm 9 this morning, worshiping God with all of our heart. But really, I mean, it's the same thing. We know what we're talking about. It's right here. When you uh, first fell in love, you know, you got your first girlfriend or boyfriend and you couldn't function and you didn't feel like eating and somebody said, are you sick? <laughs> a little bit. Or you have a really big stress in your life. You're worried about something. What does it affect? It affects right here. And the Bible says that Isaiah 53, it prophesies that when Jesus would come, he would be a man that was acquainted with sorrows. He took upon us our griefs and our diseases, our hurts. He took on those things. It doesn't mean that he got leprosy. It means he felt the devastation and the hurt of the human hurts that we hurt with. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was tested in every point just like we are, yet without sin. Because of that, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. See, the Pharisees taught that God was kind of removed and you better just jump up and work really hard and maybe you might make it. But he really doesn't have time to be touched with your infirmities. No, no, Jesus loved. He had compassion. He cared. He cared because God is love and God cares. It's the nature of God. The first great motive in the heart of Christ to teach and preach and heal was that God cares about men. It's his nature to care. It's in his heart to care. He was moved with compassion. Does God care? He cares supremely. Does God care and love beyond anything that human being could ever experience? Yes, because he's God. He knows the need. We can look at surface things. God, Jesus can see all the way to the burdens of the heart. Thomas Watson said, we may force God to punish us or discipline us with our rebellion, but we will never have to force him to love us. It's his nature. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. There is no reason in man that God should save. The need is born of God's own compassion. No man has any claim upon God. Why then should men be cared for? Why should they not become the prey of the wolf having wandered from the fold? It has been said that the great work of redemption was the outcome of a passion for the righteousness and holiness of God. That Jesus must come and teach and live and suffer and die because God is righteous and holy. G. Campbell Morgan said, I do not read the story that way. God could have met every demand of his righteousness and every demand of his holiness by handing men over to the doom they brought upon themselves. But deepest in the being of God is his great energizing, both holiness and righteousness. It's his love and compassion. It out of the love which inspired the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided. What moved our Lord? His love, his compassion. What's the second motivation that motivated him to teach and to heal, to reach out and to minister? It's the condition of the flock. The Bible says he came into his own and his own received not because they've been led astray like sheep without a shepherd. The two words there, he says, seeing the people because they were distressed and dispirited. They were stressed and they were cast down. 
They've been abused by their own leadership. The ones that said they were supposed to be the shepherds were laying burdens on them they wouldn't lift with their own finger. They just used the people. They didn't shepherd. They didn't care for them. They didn't clean them. They didn't give them the word. They didn't feed them. They just used them. And Jesus saw the flock of Israel. He saw lost people like people without a shepherd, people that were stressed. Can you imagine a shepherd or or sheep out in the wilderness in Wyoming without a shepherd to look out for them? They'd be stressed by wolves. They don't have much defense. They'd be destroyed. And while they're waiting to be destroyed and some were wounded, laying there without hope, that's the way Jesus looks at lost people. Do you look at lost people that way? Or do you look at them in your own attitude and say, well, they have their religion. Jesus couldn't leave things alone. He didn't protect himself by not being around lost people. He felt with them. He had compassion for them. He saw them as they were. They were worn out and cast down. There's a fearful passage in the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. It talks about shepherds who feed themselves instead of their sheep. It talks about shepherds who come with no healing for the wounded sheep. It talks about shepherds who never seek the lost sheep. And if then you go to 11th chapter of Zechariah, you find there are shepherds even presented there who eat their sheep and are so ferociously eating their sheep, they pull their feet apart to get every morsel remaining. That sounds more like a wolf, Right? The second thing that motivated Jesus was not only their condition, but their ultimate end. There's judgment coming. There's two kinds of harvest. There's the harvest of the righteous, and there's the harvest of the wicked. And you know, believers, if you're a true believer, you understand the word of God, hell is just one of the hardest things to even think about, isn't it? It's an awful place. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But it will be filled with the people that reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he wanted to warn people not to go there. Flee from the wrath to come. As bad as life can be on earth, it's nothing. No one can ever compare anything on earth to hell. Jesus said it's outer darkness where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Eternal life apart from God. Eternal regret, eternal bitterness, eternal pain, eternal darkness. Outer darkness. Talking in our small group this last week about people that get a chance to go down in caves and explore caves. And every once in a while, if you're with people like that, they'll say, let's just turn the lights off. You turn the lights off and you can't see anything. Imagine being out on the high plains of Laramie by yourself with no light, no hope for all eternity. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Jesus was motivated by their condition, but even more, he was motivated about their ultimate end if they reject the salvation that God provides. And so he was motivated to pray for them, to love them, to touch them, 
to teach them, to, to share the kingdom with them. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now we as believers don't want to take a general attitude about the lost. You find that in prayer meetings where they pray for all the lost around the world and all the missionaries. That's not a personal burden. Some people, they like to tell the church what to do. Well, I think the church should do this ministry. Well, you are the church. The church isn't the pastor or the building or the elders or the deacons. The church is everybody that belongs to Jesus Christ and that local church that is a part of what God is calling that particular local church to do. So when you see a need, don't call the pastor and say, Pastor, I think you should do this because God showed you the need. He showed you. And just like the disciples said, but whoa, whoa, this, this thing's too big for me. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, they said to him, Lord, we should send these people back home because, you know, they don't have anything to eat. And we don't want to be responsible for people fainting along the way. He said, why don't you feed them? And they said, if we had a whole year's wages, we couldn't feed this crowd. He said, what do you have? Well, we just have five loaves and a couple fishes. He said, bring them to me. See, God has gifted you on purpose for the things he's going to show you and the ministry he's going to lead you into. And if it was doable by yourself without the Holy Spirit, then you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. But we need the Holy Spirit. He's going to show you things that you think, I can't do that, Lord. But he showed them to you. So what's our response? Is it get working, get get organized, make sure we get some mission things organized, got to organize some things to do? No, first is to see the need, have the insight about where people are really hurting. And then he said, pray the Lord of the harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into that harvest. What does that mean? In particular, God puts a burden on your heart about your neighbor next door. And so you begin to pray, Lord, send somebody to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. That's what he said, isn't it? When you see some poor kids and you say, there's a need there. First thing you ought to do, Lord, send somebody to feed those kids. We hear about kids that, that need help with their homework. I, didn't, I was really surprised this week. I, I understood talking to one of our folks that dyslexia is real, right? But since they haven't proven what, what, how to work with I think Chris Rosinski was telling me about this. Since they haven't proven a, an effective method to deal with it, they just don't. There's opportunity, isn't there? Just teaching kids how to read, loving kids. Does your heart go out when you go to Walmart? And I see those little kids, and it's like a wonderland for some of those little poor kids, and they're in there, and they want everything, and then their mom or dad says, come on, we can't get that. And I just want to reach in my pocket and give them something. Don't you? Your heart breaks for them. there's kids without food what do we do lord we begin to pray we're not going to have a sign-up sheet for a prayer meeting for poor kids we're going to have a sign-up sheet we're not going to do it we're going to have a sign-up sheet for uh people that are interested in praying about whatever the need is you see in laramie spanish ministry or student ministry no he just says you pray you individually pray be bold enough to say lord you lay a bird on my heart today it was an old song we used to sing in youth group. Lay, Lord, lay a soul upon my heart. 
Teach me, Lord, what to say. Friends of mine are lost in sin and don't, they just do not know the way. Lord, lay the burden on me. Teach me to pray, Lord, and begin to pray. Lord, send somebody to help. Send laborers to help. God begins to burden you about a mission field. And you pray, Lord, send messengers. Send somebody to minister to that mission field. You know what is probably going to happen? Yeah. Pretty soon he's going to say, well, you've been praying about that neighbor now for a while. And you know what God's doing in the meantime? He put that burden on you because he wants to show you what he's going to do. Not what you're going to do, what he's going to do. And why you've been praying for that neighbor, you don't know. You can't see. You think that neighbor's got everything. You think your boss or, or that person that he's burdened you with, well, they're never going to listen to you because what, what do you have to say? And that's why your temptation is, hey, pastor, could you go talk to my neighbor? Don't do it. He's your neighbor. She's your neighbor, your friend. God laid him on your heart. I don't want to take your joy away. I can do that. I love to do that. I'll take all the fun. But no, he laid it on your heart. So you're praying. And so what is God doing? He is preparing their heart to receive the gospel. In the meantime, he's preparing your heart to give the gospel. You know, God wants to give us a heart that just anticipates what God's going to do. And so we begin to pray with urgency. And eventually we want to get to the place that God can burden you so much you get desperate to see somebody get saved. You get motivated enough by the Holy Spirit, you know he could save them. And you want to see somebody get saved. Do you know the majority of Christians in America, true Christians, haven't led anybody to Jesus Christ? They've relegated that to the professionals. Listen, you're missing the joy. You're missing the joy. Oh, let's have a professional meeting. We'll get an evangelist in here because he really knows how to do it. No, no, no. We're not going to let somebody else steal the joy like that. There are opportunities for you to pray. And as God is preparing the heart of that loved one that you're praying for, he's preparing your heart. And one day you say, you know what, Lord, I got an idea. Why don't I go talk to my neighbor? Why don't I go invite my neighbor to come to church with me? And God does the work. And when you see your friend, your love, when your neighbor comes to know Jesus Christ, your Savior, there is nothing in the world to compare to that kind of joy. There is not. And that's the kind that lasts for eternity. So what does Jesus say? He says, you pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest field. And then as you pray, you're open to the Holy Spirit eventually he might launch you. And the word there that he might send is launch into ministry. That he might launch people into the ministry. That's what he does. How many of our students will say, you know, I had no idea. And also I'm studying, I'm concentrating on the Lord, and whew, I have this desire to go do this or that. Rex said in his testimony there on film, I had no idea what God was going to do with me. Now he's going to be a pastor. I don't know where for sure, but he's going to be a pastor. That's what God has prepared in his heart. He wants to launch people into ministry, places that you had never dreamed before, but where does this start? It says you have to have insight. Be willing to have insight in where people are hurting. And then be willing to pray, Lord, 
Send somebody to minister. Send somebody to love somebody. Send somebody to meet those needs. And then he gives you the opportunity. Oh, the joy. John MacArthur, when he was preaching this passage, used this illustration, a true illustration. He said, one night in the east end of London, a young doctor was turning out the lights of a mission hall in which he was working. He found a ragged little boy hiding in a dark corner, and the little boy asked him to please let him stay because it was warm in the corner. He could sleep. It was a nicer place than he always slept, and the doctor said no. And he took the homeless little boy to his own home. He fed him and bathed him. Then he tried to get his story, learn from the little boy that he was living in a coal bin, and he was living in a coal bin with a number of other little boys. So the doctor asked the little fellow if he'd take him there to where the coal bin was so he could see. They walked through the narrow streets of London, and finally in the darkness of night, they came to a hole in the wall of an old factory. Look, look in there, little boy said. The doctor struck a match, and he found 13 little boys there, clothed with bits of burlap to protect them from the London cold. And one little fella grabbed him by the leg, a little four-year-old. It was the little boy's brother. They were all orphans. The doctor said that then and there, he caught a vision how he could serve the Lord. His name was Dr. Bernardo. The story is true. He cared for those little boys and little girls. At the time of his death, the newspapers of London reported that Dr. Bernardo had taken and surrounded with Christian atmosphere over 80,000 homeless children, and hundreds of them became Christians because he had the eyes of Christ to see into the darkness, the heart of Christ to draw people to light. Oh, that we would so minister. Father, we thank you for the opportunities you give us. First of all, the opportunity to know you as our Lord and Savior. You've brought us from darkness to light. Oh, Lord, help us not to be satisfied with that. Lord, give us a heart to pray for our neighbors, for the lost ones around us. Lord, give us a burden that won't go away, that we would be called to pray. And Lord, in our prayer, you would change our hearts and give us opportunity that we might go. Lord, that we might be salt and light in a dark and dying culture. That even in times like these, we might see an amazing harvest. Some are going to call to give and some to go, but Lord, you've called us all to pray that we might be a part of the great victories that you're going to accomplish. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.